Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that uh, prayer of supplication and that addition. The thought did cross my mind about why we didn't sing about being in heaven. But that's all right. He talks brave about Chad when he's not here, you notice. Yeah. <laughs> Probably talks about me when I'm not here. So I want you all to squeal, okay? Yeah. Praise the Lord. A quick update to an update before I get into the message. Indeed, um, Sister Kay Puckett, uh, Brother Derek's mom, was in the hospital, Baptist Hospital this week. Was able to go home toward the end of the week. She's been battling just uh, horrific episodes of arrhythmia with her heart rhythm in and out, in and out. Well, lo and behold, Derek informed me just this morning that she's back in Baptist Hospital. And she is scheduled for a heart oblation procedure first thing in the morning. And I want us to lift up Sister Kay. What a delight uh, she is. I've had the opportunity to visit with her at the hospital and meet her or visit with her and meet Derek's dad. And, and, um, and they are dedicated Christians that love the Lord. She's got strong faith. But I want us to pray for her uh, tomorrow morning that that procedure will do the trick and get things taken care of. Okay, if you have your Bibles, and I'm sure you do, and whether that's printed or electronic, it's okay as long as you can read it and you know where you are in the Word of God. I encourage you to turn over to, of course, Revelation 21-22. That's where we'll be focusing our attention. Mark it with your finger, bookmark, neighbor's finger, just something that can hold that place until you can get back to it. Because I want to, first of all, share a passage of Scripture that I think is so relevant when we talk about the idea of heaven in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, quoting Isaiah 64 when he says, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That excites me because that's exactly what we think about. God has so many wonderful, amazing things waiting for us in our heavenly home. But I want to encourage you, if you would, to... Turn over to the Old Testament because, uh, and if you would turn to the minor prophet Joel, Joel is one of those minor prophets there, uh, and um, and he's writing out of the ninth century B.C. in Judea, and he is basically talking about the day of the Lord. See, folks, God has always had a plan from before Genesis one one. God has had a plan. For what he wanted to do with the world, mankind, a plan of creation, a plan of redemption, a plan of judgment. And in the book of Joel, you'll find this warning that God gives, an ominous warning to the nation of Israel, to, to God's people who have rebelled against God and have abandoned the, the word of God and have engaged in idolatry and, 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 and immorality. And, and God is continually throughout the book of Joel giving them a warning of a day, a terrible day, a day of God's judgment called the day of the Lord. And, and, and to appreciate where things are transpiring with heaven, it just, it's good just to go back and quickly see in Joel chapter 1, for instance, in verse 15, Joel warns of, he says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And of course, throughout the book of Joel, you see God's, His judgment intensified 
First of all, there was a, a, a plague of locusts that would consume all the crops and, and, and leave the, the land barren. And then, even after that, Joel continually warns when the people don't repent that the day of the Lord is coming in and yet another wave of God's judgment would indeed come years later in the form of a, of a barbaric army that would take the, the land captive and, and, and slay the people of God. And, and yet, that's not the end of it because even nestled in the words of prophecy we find in chapter 3 of Joel, verse 14. Joel is, is using apocalyptic language, speaking of the end of time. So as to say to all of mankind, it ain't over yet. You continue to re- rebel against God and the ultimate day of the Lord is coming. And God will bring great judgment upon the, on the whole earth, upon all of rebellious humanity. And we see him prophetically speaking of that in Joel chapter 3 verse 14. He says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake and the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So what we are seeing, and you may recall in the previous message on heaven that that indeed God begins a a period of judgment upon the world and its future to us. God will have raptured the church, all of the born-again believers in Jesus Christ, true followers of Christ, will have been taken, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, will be caught up those who are, are, are already in heaven, their souls will be reunited with their bodies that are asleep in the grave. But we who are alive and well and, and living at the time, and, and if we're here at the time of the rapture, we'll be caught up. And, and so as Revelation chapter 6 begins, the great tribulation comes upon the earth. Cataclysmic, seismic, earth activity, earthquakes, and, and, and hailstones, and, and meteorites crashing into the earth. Millions will die. God will rain down upon this earth His white-hot wrath of judgment upon the world. And it will be in succession, uh, one after another after another, as those judgments are described throughout Revelation, beginning in chapter 6. Praise the Lord, we won't be here because God doesn't aim His wrath and His judgment towards His people. But for those who are left behind during that time, it will be the day of the Lord. And it will take seven years for this to play itself out. And so we see this great day of the Lord being poured out. Uh, And and the the neat thing is, as we look, if you go back to Revelation, and for instance, in chapter 19, we're not going to read through that. But we see that the day of the Lord is, even though it's been transpiring now for, uh, for, for a few years, we're toward the end of the tribulation time in, in the seventh year, we see the great uh, uh, empire of the Antichrist is about to fall in chapter 19. The neat thing is we are there at the throne of God. The saints are gathered, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, the angels and the heavenly hosts are there at the throne of God. We're seeing this transpire from a heavenly perspective in the present heaven. And so God is about to bring that great Babylon, which is the empire of the Antichrist. It will be destroyed in, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. And there's great, there's great mourning on the earth by, the, by, by those who have benefited from this evil empire, if you will. 
But in heaven there will be great celebration and anticipation because we realize that something wonderful is about to happen because Jesus is about to come in his second coming. And he will bring to a close the judgment of God. And we see in chapter 19 beginning in verse 11. And imagine being there. You can just sense the, 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 the anticipation and the excitement, the energy. Because the word is out that Jesus is about to embark. We can see the great white horse that he will himself ride in this great procession. We, the army of the Lord, clothed in white linen and robes, which represents our righteousness in Christ. We will accompany him. We'll be riding behind him. We'll will see this great unfolding as the Son of God descends upon the, on the earth and, and he's described there as being upon this horse with the robe in verse uh, 16 uh, and, and the, a name on his thigh saying King of kings and Lord of lords and he will utterly destroy all of the opposition against him at that time. And we're told in chapter 19 in verse 20 that the beast... That is, the Antichrist and his false prophet will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. So will all of those who have rebelled against the Lord. And then in verse 20, as we begin in that thousand year reign of Christ, because as he defeats evil, the Antichrist and overthrows him and all of the rebellious armies that have mustered uh, their strength against the Lord, they've been soundly, utterly defeated, their corpses everywhere such that the birds of the air will come to devour the corpses of the evil kings and princes and leaders. And as chapter 20 begins to unfold, we see that, that he even takes hold, of, Jesus does it personally, sends one of his great angels and takes hold of the dragon who is Satan, Satan the devil. And in verse 2 of chapter 20, he cast him, bound, bound him, and then cast him into the bottomless pit where he'll stay for a thousand years. During this thousand millennial thousand year millennial reign of Christ upon the earth we will be here we will reign with Christ upon the earth he will be supreme the ruler of the world from Jerusalem where he will reign but then it's interesting because at the end of the thousand year reign Satan is released in verse 7 it says now when a thousand years have expired Satan will be released from his prison and will go about deceiving the nation. This is Satan's last hurrah, if you will. He have an opportunity to deceive the nations. And it seems almost incredible to think. Christ is here on the earth. Saints are here helping him to rule the earth. And you would think, my goodness, the residents of the earth at this time would never rebel against the Lord, having had the opportunity to see him on his throne of majesty and yet don't underestimate the power of Satan and sin to deceive some. And some will fall for that. And they will join Satan in rebellion. And of course, Satan is overthrown. Finally, once and for all. And the scripture tells us that he is cast into the eternal lake of fire forever and ever. As well as those with him. In verse 11 of chapter 20, we see the great white throne of judgment. This is the, probably one of the most ominous scenes in the scriptures. Because here you'll see Christ seated on his great throne of judgment. He is the judge of all of humanity. He is the judge of all the world. And the scripture talks about that second death. We will be a part of the first resurrection. We, when, when the rapture occurs, we, we're resurrected at that point. 
our bodies, our physical bodies are joined with our souls. And we are, we are at this time in our glorified bodies, which will be the body that we will occupy and live in in eternity. But for those who have rejected Christ down through the years, down through the centuries, going all the way back to the fall of man, those who have rejected God and, reje and rejected His Christ, they will experience a resurrection. The Scripture says in, in chapter 20, there in verse 11, talking about the great white throne, those who have rejected the Lord will be resurrected wherever their remains are, whether it be in graves, or whether it be at the bottom of the sea, or, or, or if they've been scattered in space. They, they will be reunited with their bodies and stand before Christ in judgment. And the Scriptures tells us that those who are not found, whose names are not found, written in the book of life, they will be cast in their own, I call it, unglorified body. Because if you're going to suffer physically and, and suffer in torment and pain and anguish, folks, that implies you've got to have a body. And just as God has designed a glorified body for us and our souls to abide in, in eternity to enjoy the splendor, the glory of heaven, let me tell you something, He will have a body that will be created, a recreation of the bodies of those who have rejected Him, designed specifically that they might endure the torment and the anguish of hell forever and ever. And the scripture ends, in that chapter ends in verse 15. After verse 14, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. He says, this is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life, this is the end. This is the very end of life and the beginning of torment. For those who have rejected Christ, they will be cast into the lake of fire. And so, hence is the complete fulfillment of what we call the, the day of the Lord. And this sets up the destruction of the earth. And, and the current heavens, if you will, our, our space and the planets, the solar system and all that exists. Dr. John MacArthur talking about how at this time, he says, the entire universe as we know it will be destroyed and be replaced by a new creation that will last forever. You may recall that we see this destruction of the world. I, I shared this with you previously in the message, Second Peter chapter 3. Peter speaks of this in verse 7, chapter 3, 2 Peter, verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire to the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, look at verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And this is spoken of not only by Peter in Second Peter 3, but we also have reference to this very thing in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65, in verses 17 through 19, he talks about this dreadful day of the Lord in which the existing earth and the heavens will be destroyed. This all sets the stage 
For what Peter talks about, if you go back to chapter 3 of 2 Peter and verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of the Lord, a day of God's terrible judgment that He reigns upon the face of the earth, upon all of rebellious humanity. But then the day of God is a day of the completion of that destruction of what existed prior and the beginning of a new world, a new earth, a new heaven. And so as, as we look at verse our chapter 21, we're looking at the glorious dawning of the day of God, if you will. In contrast to the day of the Lord, we see a new beginning. It's an exciting time. The Apostle Paul speaks of something like this in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. If I might just go back there quickly. In verse 28, he says, Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him, God, who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. The purpose of the day of God is that finally, once and for all, God, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, will be all in all. Everything will focus upon Him. That which is in heaven and that which is on the earth. And so we look at this beginning in chapter 21, verse 1. John is writing as he sees all of this unfolding. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no sea. And and may I just stop there because I know those of us like myself that like to go to the coast and go to the ocean. We scratch our heads and, and just wonder, whoa, wait a minute here. You know, you have to understand that in first century culture, in ancient times, the sea represented a mysterious force seen almost as a dark, dark place of force because many people lost their lives at sea. Many people lost their lives. Sailors out on the oceans, if you would, of the seas with the storms raging. And oftentimes they were, they, they, the storms at sea were regarded to be God's judgment or anger. And so it, the sea had an ominous kind of an association to it. And I can't say conclusively that John is trying to put people's minds at ease to say there's not going to be any massive force of evil in the new creation. And it's certainly not to say that there won't be any large bodies of water because the Scriptures tell us that there will be water. And, and I believe there will be bodies of water. But we can't be dogmatic about that. But I just want to offer that little word of maybe enlightenment on that. In verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Now, folks, we, the people of God, the saints of God, while all this is, all the destruction is taking place and the hideous judgment is taking place, we are in the present heaven. We are safe and secure in the presence of God. And so, once the the existing earth is destroyed and God creates the new earth, then we're ready to take up residence in this new eternal home. And the important thing for us to remember is that this place that this this new eternal home is 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 actually where God's throne is 
That's what makes it heaven. That's the whole purpose of heaven. Is that people would actually be in the very presence of God. And he, his throne will be here. It's interesting because Dr. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, talking about the new earth, he said, just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. Now, when God destroys the existing earth, it's not to say that He throws away the blueprint. I believe that as we look at what is described in the Scriptures about the new earth, if you will, there are similarities. There will be governments on the new earth, if you will. And, and there will be natural resources on the new earth as, as it is. Just imagine the most beautiful places that you visit on this earth. And just imagine it amplified immensely. The most beautiful scene that you've ever seen on this earth. Once God has recreated this in the form of the new earth, it'll be even more splendid. It's almost like having the privilege of going back and revisiting the Garden of Eden only expanded. And so this is the, the new earth in which we will dwell in the glorious day of the Lord. But let's look at what he's describing here as he talks about this, this new Jerusalem that, that comes down out of heaven. This is a creation of God. That you know, Jesus said in John 14, in chapter 3, uh, chapter 14, verse 3, He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for, for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you will be also. So as we, as we see John talking about this new earth, he also describes how New Jerusalem descends down. It's a, it's a magnificent city. It is a, a splendid city because it's the city in which the throne of God is a central focal point. Let's, let's look there beginning in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And look at verse 4. Because oftentimes we associate this verse with the present heaven. But actually, it's speaking of the eternal heaven. The new earth. The new Jerusalem. In verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. In this new home that is ours, in New Jerusalem, uh, where we'll be in the very presence of God, there'll be no sorrow. There'll be, there'll be no sin. Take sin out of the formula. Take Satan out of the formula. There's no reason to be sad. There's no reason to have sorrow. There's no pain because there's no disease. There's no death because there's nothing to end our lives as we are eternal in Christ. In verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write those, these words, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now just keep in mind, when he says, I make all things new, you know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, the new things have come. You know what? When, when we are saved and we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we leave this world and we occupy our glorified body, let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't throw out the old. 
He doesn't, he doesn't destroy our, our bodies, our personalities, the things that, that make us uniquely us. He makes it new. A recreation, if you will. That's what Paul says. You are a new creature, though you're the same person, but he's, he's eliminated all the bad parts and given us a total makeover. And so, if he does that with us as his people, he could do the same thing with the earth. He could take the old earth, extract all the evil influences of the fall and the curse, and, and then amplify it with his divine creative touch and make it many, many times more splendid. In verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who, over, who overcomes shall in, inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And in verse 7, when he speaks of, he uses this term, John uses this term, he who overcomes. Who, who is the overcomer? Is it those who've lived a perfect Christian life? Is it those that have, have the most rewards in heaven? No. That term simply speaks of all Christians. Every person who, through the blood of Jesus Christ, have overcome the penalty of sin and we are adopted into the family of God. It's interesting that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would include verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexual immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Just as a reminder, when the new earth is created, and when the new Jerusalem, our heavenly home, descends down to the new earth, out of heaven, in all of the new creation, the new earth, the new heavens, there will be no semblance of sin. No sinners. None of the people that are listed there will be present on the face of the earth at that time. That's hard for us to even imagine. All crooked people, evil people, liars, deceitful people, immoral people, uh, the devil, the demons, all gone. It's paradise. In verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, these are the angels that, that were carrying out the wrath of God during the, the day of the Lord, came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride and the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Verse 14. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. What you're finding here is a description of the, the new Jerusalem. And it, and it is the abiding place, if you will. It is the residence of the body of Christ. 
That's why John, the angel is telling John, watch, you're going to see the wife of the lamb. You're going to see the bride of Christ. This is the church. And the church is made up of the redeemed saints of the Old Testament represented by the 12 tribes of Israel. But also the 12 apostles representing the New Testament saints. So it is the whole complete body of Christ. And, it's, and this massive city is descending down from the present heaven into upon the earth, if you will. Verse 15, And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls, and the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, or your translation may say stadia. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that of an angel. And the construction of the wall. Now, now just try to envision the visual impact of, of this beautiful, massive city descending down from heaven to the new earth. And, and look how John, he's grasping, just as you and I would be. These may not be completely accurate descriptions, but from his own knowledge of the stones that existed in his day, he's describing what this beautiful city looked like. In verse 18, and the construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like a clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, and the second sapphire, and the third chalcedony, and the fourth emerald, and the fifth sardonyx, and the, the, and the sixth sard, sardius, and the seventh crystallite, and the eighth beryl, and ninth topaz, and the tenth uh, crystal perphrase, and the eleventh jacinth, and, and the twelfth amethyst. And, and these are all beautiful, precious stones. And he says, in the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Not, and y'all point out, these gates are not made of pearls. They are phenomenal, handcrafted, enormous, individual pearls from which these tremendous gates, each one is like one pearl that, that covers these, these gates. And, and if you've ever seen a, a true pearl, the, the light glistening off generates all different colors. And he says, and, and look at the end of verse 21, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The whole city has a transparency to it so that when the, the light of the Lord, and we'll talk about that, when the, when the glory of God shines forth through all of these colors, you've got, you've got reds and you've got gold, you've got crystal clear, you've got uh, greens and yellows. Every imaginable color of the, of the spectrum is represented in the foundations and the walls and then the gates of this city and is descending down. The Shekinah glory shines through it. If you look at verse 23, it says, And the city had no sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. We see this also in chapter 22, verse 5. I'll just jump over there quickly to show you. He says, And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, 
and they shall reign forever and ever. So this, this light that, that shines forth through these transparent, beautiful gems, if you will, that make up the walls and the foundations and the gates and the streets are just, just bursting forth all over the new earth, through the new heavens, all of creation. The glory of God is shining brilliantly through that. Well, Coleman Holt asked the question about well, how is it that Jesus shines? And, and how is it that if, you know, I understand that if, he, if it's His glory that shines, then how, how does He shine then? What causes Him to shine? Good question, Coleman. I don't know. No, no. Here, here's what the scholars are saying. They're saying that first of all, we've got to understand that when the glory of God is, is spoken of and represented in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, it's spoken of as, as a brilliant light. The Lord's glory shines. For instance, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34 to meet with the Lord, and he came back down, this is the second time he had the, the tablets with the law on it, that his face, because he had been in the very presence of God, just, just reflected the glory of God. His face was shining so much so that, that it disturbed the Israelites, and they said, put a veil over your face. We can't stand to look at your face because you, the glory of God is still shining on you. Some of you have already gone on vacation. You've been out in the sun. You're not shining. You've got dark like me. Okay, so, yeah, but, but with the glory of God, the glory of God was seen again in Christ. When Jesus was there in Matthew 17 on the mountain with James and John and Peter, and it says that there He was transfigured. And what happens is, is, is His earthly body gave way to His glorified Person and, and the glory of Christ was shining forth, and he has, it was like he had white raiment and he was just glowing. We know that when Jesus encountered the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, there was a great light brighter than the sun that shone, shone down upon Paul such that it blinded him. It was a glory of God, it's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any time that we are in the presence, we can't stand to be in the presence of the Lord in our sinful, fallen bodies. Our human eyes can't tolerate the very glory, the, the brilliance of the glory of God. But that this day, we will be able to see it. And so, it is the very Shekinah glory of God that shines forth and causes this great hue of color splashed all over the whole cre new created universe at that time. It's not just the color and the, and the structure of, of the New Jerusalem is so impressive, but if we go back there and see the dimensions again, there in verse 16 and 17, talking about the size, the sheer size of the city, using the, the, the measurements that were given here in, in, in Revelation, translated into current day measurements, each, each of the dimensions given, the, the width of the city is 1,400 miles. The length of the cities, 1,400 miles. But you see, it's also described as a cube, which ironically, the, the Holy of Holies in which God is, is represented as a cube, a perfect cube in dimension. And, and remember, New Jerusalem houses, if you will, the very throne of God. It is the, the worship center of the universe. It is a perfect cube. 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. We can't even get our minds wrapped around this, I don't think. 
One of the writers that I was reading, I believe it was Dr. John MacArthur, says these dimensions would lend the New Jerusalem to be something like 2 million square miles in dimension. If we were to sit the city of the New Jerusalem down in the center of the United States, its boundaries would, would go from Canada to Mexico, from the Appalachian Mountains to California. That's just the surface and then you go upward. I think about New York City. They sell airspace in New York because space is so limited. But the, in the New Jerusalem, it's as high as it is wide and long. And, and, and if you're sitting on, on, on the face of the earth in the area, I'll tell you, and it goes up, guess what? The New Jerusalem is higher than our very atmosphere. It would jut out into outer space. One engineer factored so how, how, how much living space then for those of us that are claustrophobic like myself and maybe think well maybe it's going to be overcrowded in heaven in this new Jerusalem if you will where we reside in the presence of God well if you were generous in creating floors in, in the new Jerusalem and, 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 and you were generous to give 9 foot I mean 12 foot ceilings we go into places now we're impressed with a 9 foot ceiling well let's just say we're going to give you 12 feet for those who are claustrophobic. 12 feet ceilings. The city, the New Jerusalem, our home, would, be, would encompass about 600,000 stories. So you wonder, when we talked about the glorified body and how it is like Christ, we can, we can go in an instant, not be bound by, by, by space or physical limitations, and be able to go instantly from one place to another place, that'll come in handy. You don't want to be on the ground floor of the New Jerusalem and you've got the 599th, 995 uh, floor, uh, where your dwelling place is, you'll be instantly transported to wherever you need to go. So, so it all fits together. But, but I share this with you because God has thought it through. Not only is this new Jerusalem the, the residence of, of the saints of God, a beautiful place beyond our imagination, it's massive. And it sits on the new earth. And then, as we see in verse 22, John says, but I saw no temple in it. There will be no temple in this new Jerusalem. There's no temple on the new earth. Because you see, God is here. There's no need for a separate structure to be set aside for people to come to worship God. God is in the midst of humanity, and, and so shall we. Look at verse 24, or chapter 21. And the nations of those who were saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth, this is the new earth, there will be kings, there will be governments, there will be nations. And he says, and they will, they will see this massive, beautiful structure as it rests upon the earth, just under the, the, the heaven, if you will. And he says, its gates shall not be shut at all by day, nor by night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. There will be like a beehive. There will be activity on the new earth where the, the residents of the new earth will, 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 will be marching into the new Jerusalem in the presence of God. They, they will be doing what humanity was created to do from the very beginning. And that is day after day after day to bring before the Lord glory to God. 
And they'll be parading. There'll be no need to close the gates. You say, well, why did God even have walls and have gates? It's because of the, the, the familiar structure of, uh, that, that mankind is used to. But the gates will never be closed because there are no enemies. There will be no marauding armies to invade, uh, to come into. Everybody will, that is on the new earth will have easy access into the, the presence of, of the Lord there in the New Jerusalem. He says but in verse 27, But there shall by no means enter into it that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We know what happened to the others. They're in hell at this time. As we jump over to chapter 22, And He showed me a, a pure river. This is in the New Jerusalem. Of, of water of life. Clear as crystal. Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the, mid, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was a tree of life. You may recall that in the Garden of Eden there was a tree of life that Adam and Eve had access to to, to partake of the fruit. Well, flowing ver- from the very throne of God will be this, this massive river that flows with the water of life. Everything about New Jerusalem, everything about this new heavenly home will be about life, about being sustained. We, we will have our glorified bodies in, in the presence of, of, of God and, and on the new earth and, and we'll be freely moving about from, from New Jerusalem to, to minister out on the new earth or into the new heavens wherever God would assign us to go. And, and, and in these new bodies, I think it's so interesting, it, you know, God gives us things to eat. That the, he talks about there in chapter 22, verse 2, in the middle of the street and on the, either side of the river was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. God's into variety. So it's not like we have the same fruit every month that, 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 that nourishes us, if you will. Not that, our, not that our glorified bodies, like our physical bodies, are dependent upon food, but everything that God provides, the, the water from the river of life, the fruit from the trees of life, are designed to enhance life, to enhance pleasure, to sustain, if you will, even though it's not like eating physical food keeps our bodies alive, we are eternally alive in Christ. And he says, and the, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, but there will be no wheat, there will be no sickness. But what this is saying is like for the enhancement of our lives. To make a good thing even better. God is all for pleasure. Everything that you see described is God's foreknowledge of planning that this celestial home will be a beautiful place, but a place of absolute pleasure. In verse 3, And there shall be no curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of, of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I say to the critics who say, you know, I'm really not excited about heaven because we just sit around on clouds and we strum a harp and it sounds kind of boring. Folks, heaven's not boring because here the Scripture tells us that we'll be serving the Lord. We'll be on assignment as the people of God throughout the new earth. And as I said, there will be new heavens, there were new planets. One writer was saying, just imagine if the planets that we know of today, the ones like Mars and Venus and others that are just desolate wastelands, if you will, is that a part of the curse? 
What if in the new heavens of God has recreated the heavens and, and the solar systems and the planets? What if all of these planets are, are beautiful places that are life-sustaining? And God chooses to expand the domain of humanity to other planets. So, so you see, we'll be serving. But also the scripture tells us we'll be reigning on earth. And, and the Lord had talked about in the parable of the, of the talents. How that when we, we are given talents in this life, He says that equates with the rewards that we will have in our eternal life. If you're faithful in this life, you will have opportunity to rule in the new heaven and in this new life, this eternal life. We'll be actively reigning over the, the, the residents of the new earth. As we move on in, in verse 6, he says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God, the holy prophet, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. And when the Lord says coming quickly, he doesn't mean in terms of speaking to John like next week. Chronologically, he's just saying, when I start the process, the day of the Lord will, will happen suddenly. Everything will happen suddenly. And that's why we need to live in a constant state of preparedness because we don't know when these events will begin to transpire. But when they do, He'll be here suddenly. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, He says, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man comes in an hour that you do not know. Don't wait and think that I'll just wait till it looks like Jesus is coming again. Then I'll get my life in order and I'll get everything right with God. No, friend, don't wait. The Scripture tells us over and over it will happen suddenly. It will be like a twinkling of an eye. It will happen like the shout of an archangel. The trumpet will sound and everything will be on. Suddenly, Jesus said, He's going to come. Now, verse John says in verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things which I heard and saw. And I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. This is the second time John's done this. And the angel said, don't worship me. Worship God. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, only the, only the authentic believers, the unjust will continue to be unjust. Filthy, sinners, immoral people will continue to be immoral. Those who reject Christ will continue to reject Christ. But those who are followers of Christ, we stay true to the end. In verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, suddenly, and my reward is with me to give me, to give to everyone according to His work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I jump down to verse 20 and 21 as a close because the Lord tells John reassuringly, John is there on the Isle of Patmos. He's a prisoner on this work island. Things look bleak in the existing life that he's in. And Jesus gives him these words of encouragement. He says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. John says, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. God has given us a wonderful plan. He's given us a phenomenal 
promise that not only is He coming again, but that He has indeed created a place that we will reside with Him forever and ever. I know that some of you still have questions that maybe you'd like to ask, and you can ask me privately. I remind you that outside we have the box that you can submit questions about heaven. It's a topic that, as you can tell, is intriguing to me. Well, shucks, I'm getting ready. I don't know about you. And if I'm getting ready to go on a trip, I want to know as much as I can about the destination to which I'm headed. And I pray that if you, if, as you're here today, I pray that every day of your life you live with the assurance that if this is your last day on the face of the earth, that these things that are given so clearly in the Scriptures and so wonderfully, you live with the assurance that this will be your home forever in the presence of God with those who have gone on ahead of you and, uh, and what a glorious reunion that will be.